M&A this week on uh, a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank. Something very exciting. M&A. We have Chris here, who's uh, an expert on this, he tells us, and he's going to uh, just fill us in on M&A. Chris, tell us about M&A. Hello. Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot of confusion about MMA. The first thing I want listeners to understand is that MMA is much more than martial arts. What's he talking about? I thought we were doing... Um, it's mixed martial arts. I thought we were doing mergers and acquisitions. Why is he talking about The key word martial is arts. mixed. What I think a lot of people martial don't understand arts. is that MMA so is a full-contact combat sport. That's something. Full you can use Western boxing, grappling, boxing. Thai kickboxing... Mm. I just think Brazilian sure jiu-jitsu, right guy, for example. Uh, I, 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 let me just stop you there. Could you perhaps give us uh, an illustration of, of how this uh, applies? We're a bit unsure that this is uh, exactly what we expected. Perhaps you could tell us how, how to apply this. Well, for example, MMA is best applied by punching, kicking, chopping someone, throwing them over your back. That's MMA. Uh, well, this is a dictionary of... Finance, a dictionary there. So we would like to get into particular terms. Is there a, a term from M&A that you would oh, like to illustrate? Oh, great question. Yes, a rear naked choke. That's probably the most well-known term I, in MMA. It's an, I like the sound of it, but I'm not sure. I can demonstrate. It's easy. Okay, let's see it. Okay, I'll just use this on Alar. I should just warn you, once you use the rear naked choke... Usually, blood stops going to the brain immediately, and the match no, 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 is over. No, no, that sounds like the. I don't think that, that sounds like our podcast, actually. Yeah, no, but let me just show you. It's, it's, no, it's okay. quick and easy. I think it's, I think I'll just I, demonstrate. Chris is going on over on to Allah now, so just I, for our I, listeners. I, I'm going to commentate. Chris is going to Allah. Allah is resisting. He's got him over. The other hand goes in the biceps and wraps around the head, and then you squeeze as hard as you can. I think it's fine. Thank you very much, Chris. Okay, um, okay. call me back any time. It was okay, great. I hope, don't do I hope a, uh, if, uh, if you have any other questions. Just you, don't do a rear naked chokehold on me. At least right. not in the office. So this week on A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank, not mixed martial arts... But mergers and acquisitions, M&A, mixed martial arts can be very violent, a bit of a bloodbath. I'm sure legal, legal questions to do with M&A can be too. We've got Tom Gwynn here, who's counsel in the UK Ireland unit and the legal directorate at the European Investment Bank. You haven't been involved in any kind of violence outside the courtroom, let's On say? On the farm, yes. It was a bloodbath during my time stint as a donkey castrator in Lincolnshire. As a summer student, summer job. You said that with a, a straight face. So donkey castrators, are, it's a real thing, at least in Lincolnshire. Yeah, but there's no kickbacks here, you understand. Great. Well done. And with that line, let's move on to... To Alexander Slack, who is um, a senior legal counsel in the equity transactions team at the European Investment Fund. Hi. So welcome, welcome to uh, Dictionary of Finance. Um, what do you do when you're not doing legal transactions? Yeah, great question. I'm also a certified life coach. So hmm. I do life coaching with clients. Hmm. That, is that... Okay, so that's not life-saving. It's, uh, it could be life-saving, I guess. Well, what it, is life coaching? It, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's, it's more about getting people out of a place of stuckness and uh, more aligned with their goals, getting them to where they want to be in life. So you mean if Tom was still castrating donkeys 20 years later, 
you'd say, why don't you go to law school? Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Moving Fantastic. him to the place he wants to get to. <laughs> Good. Well, we could always do with a little life coaching, all of us. Let's, let's get into mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Alexandra, first of all, what is a merger and what's an acquisition? Why would you do one rather than the other if you're a company? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, in common parlance, I think mergers and acquisitions are kind of used in the, the same um, phrase. So for the general public, it's all the same thing. From a legal perspective, it's actually a little bit different. A merger is the coming together of two companies, one absorbing the other. So by the end of the process, you end up with one entity. An acquisition would be um, one company acquiring the other company, um, whereby those two companies continue to exist but one holding a majority stake in the other. Um, Just to make a a second distinction on an acquisition, you could also have a company acquiring the assets of another company. So it could be the acquisition um, of one company's shares or the acquisition of a company's assets. But with the merger, is the end result a third company or is it still one of the two companies that got involved in the first place? Yeah, it's it's usually um, the one absorbing is a fusion and merger and combination of two or more companies. Uh, and in most cases, it does result in a new entity with a new corporate status and a new name and a new brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more often than not the case. Uh, so the acquisition, mergers and acquisitions, is more the other term. That one of the other terms we wanted to get at today on a dictionary of finance is the takeover. That's an acquisition. It would be an acquisition or takeover, whether on a hostile or a voluntary basis. So what's a hostile takeover? The hostile takeover is often a bit of a contrast to a merger. A merger implies and is often involving a mutual voluntary marriage, as it were. I mean, it's like a marriage. Most marriage, you would think, is a very voluntary, willing basis. These uh, days, yes. These days, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um But the takeover or an acquisition often is unsolicited uh, of a target uh, company that is not necessarily for sale. How can you how can you acquire something that's not for sale? How can you do a hostile takeover? We're not talking about bride snatching here or anything like that. We're simply, uh, in real terms, talking about uh, a company that is not on offer or being up for sale. But there comes a point in the aggressive, hostile takeover where the offer is simply too good for the shareholders to resist. Mm -hmm. A case in point, I would say, and a recent example, is the Cadbury's or the GKN uh, hostile takeover, where, if I may Mm -hmm. uh, give you some recent examples, where the acquirer or buyer would aggressively pursue First, the management and propose a price per share for them. And if it's not attractive enough or the management resists that through a defense, the acquirer or the investor, potential venture, vulture, corporate raider, uh, as they commonly call today, or uh, simply asset stripper even, simply bypass management and go direct to the shareholders and offer up the pricing to a point where the shareholders think, well... You know, it's such a high premium on the shares. It's a good time to get out and cash in. So why 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 would uh, the management um, not be uh, not be happy with the offer? Uh, I mean, it, it's not their shares, so what? they wouldn't be losing out. So why would they resist a a takeover? 
it might not be part of the strategic plan of the company. Um, plus, as you said, it might be that management are not holding a great deal of the shares, so they might not be able to capitalise really on the, the value of the offer. Um, mm-hmm. Could it more, also be that you mentioned asset stripping there? So yeah. in, in the case of Melrose, a pursuit of GKN that was uh, reaching the, the climatic point uh, beginning of this year, um, a prime example of uh, why a management of a target will resist that is because they have already proven to the vulture investor or buyer that they are not effective or successful or performing or delivering as a board or management, and therefore they are vulnerable. So the next likely step, the immediate moment after they are acquired, the management of the target are pretty suspicious, I would say, and, and, and see things the writing on the wall, that they would be... Out of the job. Out of the job. They mm-hmm. would be deposed. They would be uh, pushed aside. Is this where we get to something that I think started up in the 1980s, which is the leverage buyout and the asset stripping? In other words, where the corporate raider says, I could get more value out of this company by selling it in bits than you can by running it all as one company. Yeah, I think I think that's right um, because there's so much value that can be obtained by splitting off the business and selling it in its um, its requisite chunks, um, and that's certainly what private equity houses um, have done in the past. Um, that's one way that they they seek to gain value um, rather than partnering with the business, um, which would be the other way, and um, developing them through growth phases for a five or ten year plan with the prospect of selling them. Um, to another buyout firm um, thereafter. And this, w- this would be an example where the, the private equity house would think that with a different kind of management or a different strategy, uh, the growth would be greater than it is now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they would put together a, a growth plan um, yeah. and then they would execute that plan over a number of years. Mm-hmm. But at the time of acquisition, knowing that over the set period, they would be wanting an, an exit um, in a particular market. This, yeah. was, this was seen in the 1980s, let's say, as a very negative thing. There were many negative things yeah, about I mean, the 1980s, the, the music of Rick Astley and so on. But there was also this phrase, the barbarians at the gate, which came along then. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about that and what, yeah, what, how people viewed uh, asset stripping and, and buyouts, as they were called in those days? Yeah, I mean, you, 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 those phrases, um, type of phrases, Matthew, barbarians at the gate, you know, conjures up all sort of yuppie image of, you know, Edward Lewis in Pretty Woman, you know, Gordon Gecko in the Wall Street movies, and it all traces its origin back to private equity firm uh, KKR or Cobra Kravis Roberts, where they aggressively pursued, as epitomized, uh, immortalized, I would say, in the bestseller novel, Barbarians at the Gate by Brian Burrow and John Haliar, uh, summarizing the corporate strategy, the ruthless corporate strategy of these asterisk strippers whose prime motive and opus operandi is simply, with a very short five-year term, to asset strip. Literally, if you look at a car on its you know, final days, they'll strip the wheel, they'll strip the parts and sell it. You know, if we go back to the more recent example I mentioned on GKN or Melrose, um, these guys' motto is buy, improve and sell. So it's a very short-term solution. There's no... Uh, priorities of preserving growth, brand, uh, increasing market share, 
or necessarily uh, maintain employment for the staff. Mm-hmm. It's simply to quick turnaround. These are the turnaround merchants and vultures that politicians today talk about and get in, get out strategy to maximize value and exit mm-hmm. um, to make a quick turn return. So these would be a, an example of a financial investor doing a an, an acquisition, and the other category would be a, a strategic investor. Is yep. that right? So what would a, what what would what would the objective of a strategic investor? Or what's a strategic merger or acquisition like? I, sorry, just to go to follow up that point. Uh, this is not to say all takeovers and acquisition are necessarily asset stripping. There have been example, as in the case of, you know, the more less recent example of, say, Kraft Foods, the U.S. Uh, grocery uh, giant acquiring aggressive uh, pursuit of Cadbury's, mm-hmm. the, the traditional family base. You know, there it was more strategic than asset, you know, stripping mid-term, short-term strategy. They wanted to split their business into grocery and confectionery business and increase market shares in India and Asia. That wasn't a short-term strategy to exit. Mm-hmm. That was purely part of their global growth strategy in the confectionery sector that they felt they needed a missing piece to develop and grow globally. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it wasn't a short-term asset strip. It was merely a strategic long-term growth. Yeah, and and I think increasingly over the last decade or so, private equity firms who in the 1980s were doing perhaps more asset stripping now have more of a reputation for growing the business that they're acquiring so that they partner with the business and they grow that business, um, they increase revenues, um, they increase the number of outlets of the relevant um, shop that they've bought, um, they have an international growth plan, um, and that's really what they're seeking to do. And I can give an example of that. Um, When I was in London um, working on M&A transactions. I worked with the um, founders of the um, Pret-a-Manger sandwich chain and they were selling at that point to a private equity firm called Bridgepoint who eventually acquired a stake in the entity for about 324 or 25 million um, GBP. That I think you will have seen in the press recently was sold 10 years after that acquisition to a Luxembourg holding company um, for approximately 1.5 billion. Oh wow. So you can mm. see the kind of growth that private equity is now managing to engender in the... Yeah, sector. instead of the, the quick hit. One of the focuses of strategic investors or in strategic investment these days is in the high-tech area. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of really big companies like Google and, and Facebook that uh, whenever you hear of a, of a relatively small and interesting high-tech company, the next thing you hear about it is it's been bought by Facebook. And so that essentially Facebook or Google owns pretty much everything. Uh, we had a, an example of that here at the bank recently when PayPal bought uh, a company in, in Sweden that the bank had invested in. Uh, and that was kind of a surprise. And there we go. Um, what thereafter is not asset stripping or anything like that. They thereafter, if I'm correct, the intellectual property rights uh, that that essentially the software uh, you know they're not buying factories and things like that. They what does that mean really? Though the intellectual property rights. Um, well, there you're looking at things like trademarks, um, the copyright, 
um, uh, patents, uh, design rights, um, all of those things would be classified as intellectual property rights, um, and they would be being acquired as part of a share acquisition. So where the business, um, the company itself is being acquired, um, the shares are being purchased, and everything within the business is going across with that. So all of the IP, any employees, um, all the debts IP, and liability, IP, intellectual property. Ah, yep. so yep. Know-how. Um, mm-hmm. Just to add to that point, there's a multitude of purpose when they do acquire uh a target of that nature because there's many benefits. Firstly, they eliminate a competitor. They streamline and synergies and resources, reducing cost base. But I think with these start tech startups, uh, I think one of the primary reasons, as far as I'm aware, in the growing industry is they also uh, instantly, overnight, can cross-sell to the client-customer follow base of that existing target. So, you know, you, you acquire WhatsApp, how many billion users of that, and instantly you acquire a massive client-customer base. I think so the goodwill, the business book, along the know-how, go hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah, and, and eliminating competition, yeah, or potential competition. aligning, you know, uh, reducing cost base. Uh, and, and, also, and also acquiring the talent because you often you often uh, yeah. want to get these uh, young entrepreneurs who have who've, uh, created this fascinating startup and you want them to be building something for your own brand instead. Absolutely. Yeah. But we, what we're talking about there is companies that are getting bigger. They're merging and acquiring and getting bigger. When a company gets smaller, it can be through having a spin-off. What's a spin-off and how, why would they do that? Um, well, that's where either part of the business is um, siphoned off um, into another entity um, and then sold, packaged up for um, for sale to another strategic investor. So the management buyout is when the ma- existing management of a company yeah. would ac- acquire the company from the shareholders? Pretty much. And they raise their own financing and then they got their own strategy and plan, you know, which they want to pursue. And they want, uh, and it may not necessarily go down well with all the shareholders having everyone on board. So they decide to go it alone and raise the funds enough to buy it out. Um, Is that when they might want to use something called a squeeze out? Um, a squeeze-out is actually something a little bit different. A squeeze-out right enables um, an acquirer, so someone who's made an offer for a company to, to purchase the shares of that company. It allows them the ability to acquire the whole of the company. So the acquirer then has a right to 100%. Um, and it has that right once it has had, um, say, 90% of the um, shareholders accept their offer. So there's usually a threshold at which um, they need to have acceptances, And then after that threshold has been crossed, um, they're able to essentially squeeze out that minority 10% Mm -hmm. and compulsarily acquire the remainder of the company. Um, And and it's a useful technique when you have, um, for example, unresponsive shareholders um, who have, I don't know, moved house and forgotten to update the company Mm -hmm. register with their new details. They would form part of what's called the dead register, i.e., unresponsive. Dead register. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, um, and so it's it's a legal mechanism for dealing with that scenario where you wouldn't otherwise be able to deliver a hundred percent of the shares in the company yeah. without that that mechanism. They would still get paid the same amount per share as the first ninety percent. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's squeeze out. 
that squeeze out. You're yeah. quite sure it's not a mixed martial arts move. <laughs> I, I, I hope not, and it's uh-huh. uh, certainly not something I would like to experience Sounds like personally. Sounds what uh, Chris was doing to Allah, but never mind. Okay. Uh, some of the other terms, though. What what are what's a drag along? Drag along, tag along. You know, these are very uh, common phrases uh, that we have seen in M and A deals, where primarily they designed to achieve uh, minority shareholder protection. Mm. So, you know, the, for example, you and Matthew represent five percent shareholding of company X. And you've got the majority shareholders have been locked in negotiation. They want to exit the company, uh, and if they do sell it for a good price at a certain time on a favorable set of terms and conditions, it's very important that the five percent that you both represent are also have the right uh, terms and condition and to piggyback the majority shareholders when they do sell up for the same price, terms, conditions, and timing. So it's primarily designed. Uh, first and foremost, to protect the minority shareholders, to allow them the same benefit on a sale and acquisition of a company, but equally, it allows the majority shareholders to incentivize the minority shareholding that you say represent in your five percent to make sure that you alone uh, are incentivized enough not to block the deal going ahead. So, so the majority shareholder would force you to drag yeah, along. Absolutely, the that's that's the literal meaning. They would mm-hmm. have the right to drag along, but on the condition that you, the, the minority shareholders uh, get to piggyback on mm-hmm. the same favorable set of terms and conditions. Conversely, uh, the, the the tag along is when it's also a similar purpose that you should be able to. Um, Follow the majority shareholders primarily because, uh, you know, as a minority shareholder in the company, you need the necessary protection, and make sure that there's no deadlock. Now, um, the, the European Investment Bank and the European Investment Fund, they they're not really involved with a lot of mergers, uh, unlike more commercial entities. But but what's how is when we invest in a fund uh, or when when we invest in a in an equity deal with a company, how would that be different from a from an acquisition? Is mm. that is that an acquisition basically? No, I, I would say that's an investment. So we're essentially one level up in the structuring, in the mm. legal structuring. So what we're doing at the investment fund um, on the equity side is we're negotiating equity investments. So they are investments made by the fund into funds managed by fund managers across Europe. So these funds, they would do acquisitions. Exactly. Okay. So once they've got the, the requisite amount pooled um, in the fund, it's the fund through the fund manager and the fund manager's strategy for the use of those resources that will be doing the acquisitions that we've been talking about. So it's the fund manager and the fund manager's council which would be executing these acquisitions. And then, you know, there may be cases where the EIB or the EIF would have a board member that sits, you know, on the board of that company. But that doesn't necessarily mean you control it. You allow voting rights and et cetera, but I don't think it's quite an acquisition. I'm sure the same level of due diligence applies. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make sure that you know the numbers add up, uh, the liabilities, the strategies uh, are, are what we expect them to be, uh, and it's all part of a, a valuation process. So let's say if there's going to be an acquisition or, or a merger, uh, 
how does it actually happen? You know, once someone has decided it's going to happen, what are the what are the stages? Where do, where do the lawyers come in, and what do the lawyers do? Well, today, Alexander, I can only speak, uh, you know, from the angle viewpoint of an M and A or transactional lawyer, uh, and what we see, and Alexandra will share with you her experience, but mine experience has been is a is a class of thousands. You know, you have investment bankers, you've got financial advisors, you've got audit, and primarily the lawyers come in when. Uh, we are instructed to uh, carry out, conduct due diligence on a target for a, you know, a, a, a buyer. But what's due diligence? Due what diligence is, is simply an exercise where uh, to make sure that the caveat emptor principle is fully uh, complied with. Mainly, um, if you're a seller, you know you would be typically too busy making widgets to make sure the critical time of selling your company, whether it's business or shares, that you are still delivering, performing profitably, if not the most profitable, because you want to max out in terms of sale price, achieve the highest sale possible. So your time and effort and day-to-day preoccupation is to make sure you run the business. You shouldn't be distracted by having to market the company and provide information. That's really for the investment bankers, the financial advisors, the lawyers to doubt. And typically, you set one of two types of data room. There's a virtual one and a traditional one where you basically supply this data room and it's a very confidential process where you have to really sign you know, non-disclosure agreement to have access to the books. It's literally the seller opening their books, business books, numbers, mm-hmm. sensitive details to justify the asking price for the business. They want to justify the valuation, the asking sale price, they ask of a buyer. And from a buyer's perspective, you want to make sure that you check the contracts, the business books, uh, what this seller is claiming to be. So if you, the seller is claiming to have 500 contracts that's worth $2 million, you want to make sure those numbers add up and you inspect the books. Conversely, also, you need to make sure that not just the profit and, uh, and uh, you know, the upside, but also are there skeletons in the, the pension liabilities, the litigation, the debts to creditors. You need to make sure that those are fully disclosed so that any adjustment in the valuation of the purchase price can then be negotiated. So that's all part of the due diligence process. It involves lawyers, financial advisors, bankers, a uh, cost of hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. The data room doesn't really sound like a place where all the fun happens. But if you're, if you're a lawyer, I assume that's actually a very fascinating thing to be involved in. That's definitely where our fun happens. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, you do have, you have to have a certain degree of tenacity and motivation um, as, a, as a junior lawyer, certainly, um, because the data room isn't necessarily the most fascinating place. Um, it is where you can kind of cut your teeth in terms of seeing how contracts work and making sure that they are doing what they should be doing. Um, so as Tom said, you know, a large part of what a lawyer is doing as part of the diligence process is reading the contracts, so making sure that the terms are correct, and then it's reporting that information back through means of a due diligence report to your client, the, the potential acquirer. Um, and that, as Tom rightly said, um, feeds into their decision as to whether they want to pay the value um, which is being asked or quite where to set the range on the price. Tom and Alexandra, thank you so much for being on A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank. Uh, to our listeners, um, don't forget to subscribe 
to this podcast and our new podcast, Future Europe, which is about the future of Europe. Did I mention that to you? You did, yes. Yeah, yeah. It okay. talks so, about uh, 28 different companies uh, having a hopefully positive impact on the future of Europe in various ways, one from each country, and you can look it up on iTunes or whichever platform you use for listening to podcasts, along with, of course, um, uh, subscribing to a Dictionary of Finance. And in the meantime, you can be in touch with us on Twitter if you have some other uh, questions that you'd like to have us put to our legal experts here, or if maybe you're a, a castrated donkey who wants to troll Tom on the internet or something like that. Uh, I'm at EIB Matt, E-I-B-M-A-T-T. And I'm at Dollar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. And we'll see you, not literally, on the next podcast from the European Investment Bank on a dictionary of finance. Mm-hmm.